This is Cybok, the cybersecurity body of knowledge, distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. Hello and welcome to Cybok. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Joining us today is Professor Nigel Smart from KU Louvain. He's author of the Cybok Cryptography Knowledge Area. It's kind of easy because everybody's seen cryptography in movies. Um, so you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to send a communication or some data from point A to point B without anyone in between knowing what that, learning what that data is. However, cryptography is much more bigger than that because it's also about knowing where the data come from, came from. So, for example, you might want to send um, some information over a channel, but know where it came from. You don't care whether it's secret or not. You just want to know that it came from the right person. And that's also dealt with via cryptography. Hmm. So cryptography covers a lot of areas. So uh, let's dig into to some of the specifics here. I mean, at its core, it's really all based on mathematics. Yeah. So in terms of the, probably if you if the people read different chapters of the Cybot document, the cryptography uh, chapter is probably the most mathematically scary of all of them because it can't help but be because it's essentially it's a very, very deep mathematical area. Cryptography at its core is an intersection of um, some very esoteric, what used to be called pure mathematics, combined with um, what used to be called theoretical computer science. So it's it's kind of weird in that it's a very, very applied area, but it comes out of something in computer science called theoretical computer science and something in mathematics called pure math. So it doesn't sound very applied where it's come from. And yet, I suppose, I mean, there's still an area for creativity where when it comes to uh, the, the actual implementation of these things. Yeah. So um, if you read the sidebot, we kind of, the sidebot chapter, we kind of touch on some of the really kind of new creative things that people are doing with cryptography. So, for example, we touch on the idea of, um, so cryptography has usually been used um, historically to secure communications when you send your credit card details to a website, they're encrypted. How do you know you're sending them to the right person? It's because you've got some digital signature coming back. If you're a politician or someone and you lose your laptop on a train, as they want to do, um, it's protected because the hard disk is encrypted. Now, those two things are we're securing data in transit and data at rest. But actually, data is pointless unless you actually want to do something with it. So kind of new areas of cryptography that are currently being deployed are securing data whilst you compute on it. So this allows you to uh, take, you know, two companies' databases and merge them in a way which you get statistical information out without um, revealing the actual private records within the, in the database. So it's a kind of like it's a, a magic bullet technology that helps solve a lot of GDPR issues. And, and is that um, what's referred to as homomorphic encryption? So that's like home. So there's two technologies there. There's homomorphic encryption and where you just get one person to do the computation. And the other technology is called multi-party computation, where a multiple group of people combine their data together. So when we're talking about cryptography, I mean, what are the various security models that we have available to us? Okay, so what this cyber chapter goes into is, is kind of in detail for a really sort of basic case of what do we mean by secure encryption. So if you think about, I'm sending a message to you, um, what does it mean for that methodology to be secure? 
Um, so obviously we've got a key because I'm encrypting it and you're going to decrypt it with a key. So we don't want the key to leak. Well, that's one definition of security. But we also don't want the message to leak either. So that's another definition of security. And But also we don't want any information about the message to leak. So if we imagine you're doing, you're buying and selling stocks, you might want to uh, encrypt the message that says sell. And then you might encrypt the message, or oh, get rid of this stock. Now, the semantic meaning of those two messages is the same. Both mean sell the stock, but they're different messages. So we're not just trying to protect the actual English letters in the message. We actually want to protect the semantic meaning of the message as well. So this is why defining security for encryption schemes is rather subtle, because you're trying to protect not just in some sense, the English letters that make up the message, you're trying to protect anything about the message, including anything that you can derive about its meaning. Now, what about securing the metadata around the, the encryption itself? Okay, so that's a completely different topic. So every... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, so it's, but it's a good question. It's a really good question. So, for example, um, when you have an encrypted email, um, you can't encrypt the metadata, which is who the email's to, because the email actually has to get there. Right. And if you're connecting to a website, you actually have to get to the website. So you have to know the address and the, and, and the um, website has to be able to send the information back to you. Now, out, what you can do is that you can use um, other forms of technology which use encryption to protect you. So, for example, um, people might have heard of the Tor network, which mm. is an anonymous version of the, web, of the web where you open up a Tor browser. And if I type www.google.com into my browser, anyone looking at the network has no clue which website I'm connecting to. They don't know whether I'm connecting to Google or Microsoft or, or Amazon or whatever. But also, anyone looking at the Google end of the, of the communication has no idea it's actually a request coming from me. So you can form you can that protects the metadata of of the web traffic and basically every application has its own metadata and protecting mm. metadata is just like a whole different kettle of fish yeah it's a, it's a it's a different layer i suppose yeah 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 well let's dig into some of of the basics here i mean when when we're talking about cryptography something that comes up is this notion of hard problems yeah. uh, cryptographic primitives can you can you take us through what are we talking about there okay so the, the easiest one people can understand is that it's the hard problem of factoring um, in school you learn to multiply and it's quite easy hmm. divide is quite hard <laughs> you know uh, you always learn division after <laughs> after you do so right. if you imagine if you imagine I, I take two numbers two prime numbers I multiply them together that's easy giving you the big number and asking you to factor it is hard. And that forms the basis of a very old encryption scheme called RSA, which is not that um, deployed now. I mean, the key sizes for RSA have, got to, have gone a bit bigger. So what people use now in their browser is if you're connecting to with um, SSL session or TLS session, I should say, the modern protocol, you use something called elliptic curves. So elliptic curves form another hard problem where the idea, um, elliptic curve is quite hard to describe without a blackboard, but um, it's kind of, you you imagine you've got a, a, a device which you've got a, a turning handle on it. And 
I turn the handle n times, and you've got to work out how many times I turn the handle, is in some sense the mathematical problem behind elliptic curves. Hmm. Now, the problem is with both of those hard problems is that if anyone invented a quantum computer, they would immediately get broken. So if anyone ever came up with a quantum computer, both the factoring problem and the problem in elliptic curves would be broken. So this also leads us to other hard problems that people are now looking at in cryptography, which are so-called post-quantum secure hard problems. Hmm. And what's unique about those that, that makes them more secure? It's kind of weird. It's um, basically no one's come up with a quantum algorithm to break them yet is one answer. Another answer is that um, they're very closely related to um, NP-complete problems. So NP-complete problems in theoretical computer science are the problems that are considered to be the hardest of the kind of feasible problems. And whilst the, um, the problems in post-quantum um, cryptography are not quite your typical NP-complete problems, they're closely related. So they're good for cryptography, which normal NP-complete problems are not good for cryptography, but they're also related, which makes you think they're going to be hard. So there's a kind of, they're in a sort of Goldilocks position of just being just right. Now, can you help me understand uh, the asymmetry here? Is, is when it comes to encryption, is, is it always, uh, you mentioned, you know, multiplication is easy, division is hard. Is, is that the case with most of these encryption things where there's an asymmetry and the encryption process is easier than the decryption? I think no, it's kind of, yeah, so it depends. When you let's talk through going to a website. Hmm. So when you go to it's kind of when you go to a website, the first thing that happens is the in some sense the website authenticates to you. So that's actually doing a digital signature, which is a part of cryptography. So you know you're going to Amazon to buy this book and not the mafia. Okay. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Now what you want to do is you want to secure the traffic to the website. So you want to what you bought and what your credit card number is, etc. You want to secure. Now to do that. What you then, what you first do is you engage in a so-called public key protocol, where there's a public key is used to encrypt, in some sense, a small key, which you're then going to use for the bulk data transmission. So we actually use two forms of cryptography when connecting to a website. Hmm. We use public key encryption, where one person has a secret key who can decrypt, but anyone can encrypt. And then we use symmetric encryption where both parties have the same secret key to do bulk encryption of data. It's not quite how TLS currently works, but it's a good mental model. But and the reason for doing this is that suppose you were downloading a movie, suppose you were going to, I don't know, some uh, uh, movie site, you were mm -hmm. downloading a movie. If you use public key encryption to encrypt the movie, it would take you many years to download it and to hmm. decrypt it. Whereas if you used the public key encryption just to quickly agree a short key, then you use symmetric encryption to actually download the, the, the large amount of data. So it, I guess it's quite common that you have these sort of uh, clever um, mathematical shortcuts or, or combinations of different things that, that make these more manageable. Yeah, so it, one, it makes it more manageable, but two, it makes it more complex. So you kind of, there's no free lunch in, in, in life. So what happens is, is that we have cryptography provides a bunch of, what should we say, uh, ingredients. And then what you need to do is to build a secure system, you need to combine these ingredients using very complex recipes 
um, to uh, give you a secure system. And now, just as when you were, um, if you're making a meal, if you uh, if you combine the ingredients in a bad way, you get a bad meal. So in our context, that would be an insecure system. Hmm. Whereas if you combine the ingredients in a in a nice way and you do your cooking correctly, then you get a you get a lovely secure system and um, and everybody's happy. So. Um, obviously, it, the quality of the chef is very important in cryptography. Well, help me understand how you go about proving that a particular method is secure. Okay, so the way we do that is we've already talked about these hard problems. So we've talked about, you know, factoring is hard, um, problems on elliptic curves, etc. So what we do is we say, okay, here's a model of what it means to break an encryption scheme. So imagine... This was the, can you derive any information about the underlying message of an, of an encryption? And then we prove mathematically that if the bad guy could derive information, then he must be able to break a specific mathematically hard problem. So because we, and then we kind of turn that argument on its head is because we don't believe that the um, hard problem can be solved, this must mean the attack can't exist. So let's go through that again slowly. Mm. If we first assume there is an attack, and then we show that if there is an attack, we can solve a hard mathematical problem. But because we believe it's impossible to solve the hard mathematical problem, we can then conclude the attack doesn't exist. Now, is all of this in a way provisional where, you know, if, if someone came up with some clever new revolutionary, you know, solution to the hard problem, yeah. uh, that would change things, wouldn't yeah, it? Exactly. That changes things. So this is why if you, so this is why cryptography is constantly moving, because if you solve the hard mathematical problem, you break the encryption scheme. And this is why, so for example, if you have, as we mentioned, quantum computers come along, then the hard mathematical problems that we currently use are insecure, so we then have to change over to different hard mathematical problems, and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a never-ending game. And how have things evolved with um, the availability of of greater computing power, uh, cloud computing, and even just the you know the clock speeds and capabilities of the processors we we have on our desktops and we carry around in our pockets? Um, I guess that's made things more complicated for folks in your line of work as well. Uh, well, again, it's a, a double-edged sword. So on one hand, it's made things more complex. So if we go back to the 1970s, um, the standard encryption algorithm then was something called DES, DES, and it had a 56-bit key. We now wind forward to the 2000s, and so we, we, uh, you see the adoption of AES, which has a 128-bit key. So that's like twice, as, twice the length, over twice the length. Um, that's not twice as difficult. That's exponentially more difficult to solve, but it's, mm. it goes up. And that's mainly, one, it, that was due to mathematical advances and some of it due to computing advances. And now we're thinking of moving to 256-bit um, AS keys. Um, if you look at factoring numbers, back in the 70s, factoring a 70 or 80-digit number was hard. Now we can factor 100-digit numbers, well over 200-digit numbers quite, quite easily. The performance and improvements in computers make you need to increase keys. On the other hand, performance in computers means that you could do more cool stuff because some of the algorithms that might have been considered only theoretical a few years ago suddenly become more practical. 
So for example, we already touched on things like homomorphic encryption and multi-party computation. These are really enabled in practical applications now because of increased memory, increased bandwidth, um, fast, faster networks and faster CPUs. And, and where are we on the cutting edge? What, what's on the horizon? What, what are the things that excite you about what's yet to come? Okay, so what's exciting at the moment? Okay, so currently, and we are currently August 2019, for anyone listening to this in the near future, um, we're currently going through an exercise with the American NIST organization, National Institute for Standards and Technology, to settle on which algorithms should be used if a quantum computer is ever invented, so-called post-quantum cryptography. So there's currently a, a competition going on for post-quantum cryptography. Other things that are really exciting at the moment, so we've already touched upon secure computation, being able to compute on data whilst it's encrypted. That's having a huge boom at the moment. There's a large amount of um, startups in the space and new ideas and new applications coming in that area. And the other one we're kind of really excited um, should be deploying soon is that TLS, the the uh, protocol that's used in your browser to um, secure communications. This has just been, had a, a major revision and, and this is beginning to, the new TLS is beginning to roll out and this should, um, is expected to help secure browser traffic for the next decade or so. Yeah, it really strikes me that uh, at a certain level, cryptography is is kind of the unsung hero of, uh, of modern uh, technological life. Yeah, I mean, you use it all the time. So, um, well, okay, maybe not in the US because you still have chip and signature a bit, but if we have chip and pin in the rest of the world for mm. our credit card payment schemes, everyone uses uh, credit cards or, or debit cards. Every time you go to a bank to get money out of an automatic teller machine, you use cryptography. Every time you connect to a website, we've seen over the last few years, the percentage of all websites that are now encrypted is now by far the vast majority. So every time you log onto the internet, you use the cryptography. Every time you buy something, you use cryptography. Every time you make a mobile phone um, message, or you do a, a signal message, or you send an SMS, or you even just move your mobile phone from from one uh, uh, geographic area into another, you're using uh, cryptography because the mobile phone companies know who you are and know who to bill for your mobile phone due to cryptography. Um, if you have an identity card, there's uh, a cryptography. And if you have a passport, uh, you see passports with uh, chips on them, uh, issued by most major countries now. If you, yeah, I don't think you, can, you can't have had a non-passport, non-chipped passport for years. So that all uses cryptography. Um, even if you've got a computer that's not connected to the internet, it's using cryptography to encrypt the hard drive if it's a laptop, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. People use cryptography thousands of times a day, and they don't really realize it. Now, what are your recommendations uh, when you have a, a, a student come to you who thinks that they uh, may have an interest in cryptography? What do you recommend for them to get started? Uh, it depends on their level. If they're undergraduate level, uh, just do a lot of maths courses, a lot of theoretical computer science courses, and learn how to program in a low-level language like C, C++, Assembler, etc. Because a lot of cryptography is still done at the very, very low level. So you have to have a good combination of math and CS skills. Um, if you were coming as a graduate student, um, the first thing I'd say is read my book. And then I might say, read a book of one of my friends. Maybe Kat, there's a book called by Katz and Lindell that's quite good. Um, and then just, just get yourself a good advisor and start working on hard problems. That's Professor Nigel Smart from KU Louvain. 
To learn more about the Cybok project and the knowledge area we spoke about today, visit cybok.org. This podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cybok is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Program and led by the University of Bristol's Professor Weiss Rashid, along with Professor Andrew Martin, Professor George Denisis, Professor Emil Lupu, Professor Steve Schneider, and Dr. Howard Shivers. The Cybok podcast is produced by the Cyberwire with coordinating producers Jennifer Iben, Kelsey Bond, and Bristol University's Yvonne Rigby. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.